Father, thank you for the chance to serve you in this place. Thank you for the call that is unique to those in faith to stand out in the world as a beacon, as an ambassador to the truth of the gospel. Thank you, Father, that we have the privilege to carry that message into a lost and dying world that so desperately needs to know that truth. And as your workers in the field, Father, we have a need in our own to be taught and raised up in the Word, to be prepared for this important work so that we may have the overflowing of the Spirit within each of us and from that overflowing we may supply the needs of others in this spiritual context. And we thank you, Lord, that you have brought us here today to be filled up, to be trained up, to be encouraged, to be prayed over, and to, to, to see the work of your hands, Father, in the lives of so many others to know that you are actually working to build us up into the likeness of Christ. Father, we had a great time this morning in Bible study before the service. We had an opportunity to glorify you and worship. And now, Father, we open your word once again because there can be no greater way in which we would offer you our worship and sacrificial service than to sit at your feet. And so, Lord, I pray that you would teach us today from the word. Show us, Father, how we can be more like you and in serving, do things, Father, to be your hands and feet in this world. I praise you and thank you, Jesus, for this time. In his name, amen. Last week we got about midway through chapter 9. This is the chapter in which we saw a covenant between God and Noah and really between all of the, the creation. We started studying a little of the terms of the covenant last week. We noticed it's a one-way or the fancy word is suzerainty covenant, where God decreed to Noah and to all mankind, to all creation, the terms of this covenant. And we noticed last week that this covenant, and in some sense you could call it a contract, though that is not a perfect description in all cases, but something like a contract. It, it inaugurated, it created this new period of time in human history, a new dispensation, we might say, a point in time in which God's grace now begins to rule over men's sinful hearts in a new and greater way. We need to understand not only its terms, but its purpose. When we enter into agreements with people, we do so for reasons of our own, for purposes to attain certain outcomes. Usually in our world today, we are so concerned about getting the outcome we desire that we hire lawyers and other people to represent us to make sure the terms are exactly what we want. With God, there wasn't a need for that, of course. Reminds me of the time when a man died and went to hell because of a lack of faith, of course. And as he's walking through what is the pits of fire and sulfurous gases and shrieks of terror from those who are in this confined place, he happens to pass in the corner a lawyer that he recognizes, a man who once worked on a case years ago and had died. But the lawyer is not in terror and shrieking. He's snuggling up with this beautiful woman. And as he's being led past her, he looks at the devil and says, that's not fair. And the devil says, be quiet. Who are you to say what her punishment should be? <laughs> Remember the terms from last week in this contract, in this covenant? If you were taking notes, you notice there were three terms that God decreed to men and one that he assigned to himself. The terms for men included that they now could eat animals for food, but animals then were going to have a fear of men. He said that men would now rule over each other. And in the course of that ruling, they would be permitted to take a man's life when that person themselves was guilty of taking a life. 
And they were given the blessing to fill the earth, multiply, and once again populate the world. God's term was that he would never again destroy the earth with water. But, of course, that left open the possibility that he will one day destroy the earth in another way. Now, this covenant, because it's one way, God decreeing it, not man and God somehow entering into it together, that means that this covenant will last so long as the greater party, the strong party, God, in other words, remains faithful to his terms. So long as God does as he declared that he would do, the rest of the covenant will remain in force. Well, we know God is a faithful God. He is a covenant-keeping God, and therefore we know this covenant will remain forever. Now, the Noah covenant we said last week begins a new dispensation, a new time in God's plan for mankind. It will last until the time of the patriarchs, until Abraham. I'm not saying that the covenant only lasts that long, but I'm saying that this period of time that begins with this covenant lasts until the next period begins. This is a period in which we find God establishing the rule of human government over earth. Of course, human government continues until this day. But at a later point, when he inaugurates a new covenant with Abraham, another period, a greater period even still, will begin. We'll study that, of course, when we get there in a couple of chapters. But like all covenants, this one came with certain features, certain details that help set it apart, that help us understand that it's been established to mark or inaugurate its beginning. This morning, as we finish chapter 9 or come close to finishing it, I want you to look at one of those markers with me, the one that's highlighted now in the text. And by marker here, I mean a sign. But we also want to consider a greater question. And that question this morning is, what did the flood ultimately accomplish on earth? And what did this covenant ultimately accomplish on earth? We know the flood itself came in response to the extreme nature of man's sin on the earth. That's what we heard in chapter 6. But what did the flood achieve toward that end? Toward dealing with man's sin? Let's go to chapter 9. We pick up again in chapter 9, verse 12. God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud. And it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Covenants in Scripture usually include certain features that help mark or denote that the covenant existed and thereafter they remind the parties to this covenant to observe its terms or to recognize that it exists. Now some Bible covenants will highlight these features more clearly than others. And if you have had an opportunity to study covenant in Scripture, which, by the way, is a very worthwhile study if you ever have the chance to do so, then you'll begin to see the pattern, notice the details, but you'll also notice some are more evident than others. Some discuss them more clearly than others. But rest assured, regardless of whether every covenant in Scripture has all those details described in the text, rest assured, they're there even if we haven't seen them described. One of those basic elements is a sign or a token 
of the covenant, a sign of the covenant. A sign in covenantal terms could be compared to a, a receipt. For example, when I drop off my clothes at the dry cleaner and I leave them at that counter with the, the clerk, I've entered into a contract with that business. Legally speaking, there's now a contract in force. The terms of the contract are fairly simple. They're mostly unspoken or implied. The contract in my case would be the cleaner will clean my clothes without ruining them. Thank you very much. And when I pick them up, I will pay the advertised fee for that work, for that cleaning. That's a contract. Both parties have some obligation. Both parties have some interest in the arrangement. When I leave my clothes at that counter, the clerk will usually hand me some token, some receipt that indicates that we have entered into this contract. And usually it comes in the form of that little stub you get off of the, the label, off of the, the tag that they fill out when you drop off your clothes. Now, that receipt is a sign of my contract, or to use biblical language, of my covenant with that individual, with that business. Every time I look at that receipt in my pocket, I have visible proof that I have entered into a contract. Hopefully, it will remind me one day to go pick up those clothes that I dropped off, right? That's also a point of why I have this contract reminder or this token. Now, that sign, that token or receipt, is not the contract. It's not the contract. It's a sign of the contract. Another example I could give you is when I drove up here this morning from San Antonio and I drove into the city limits of Austin, I saw that famous sign, Austin City Limits. Was the sign the city? If I took that sign off the post and took it to my house and hung it up on the wall, did I just move the city of Austin into my home? Of course not. I moved a sign of the city. It's not the real thing. It's a sign. Similarly, that little tag I have in my hand, it's not the contract. It's simply a sign of the contract. And you all have obviously got my point now as I beat the horse. So covenants use signs in a similar way. They remind the parties that an agreement was put in place. They are not the substance of the contract. They merely point to the contract. And in the same way that a signature is a way of attesting to a participation in contracts. It's a way of putting my honor on the line, so to speak, to the terms of a contract. Similarly, a sign of a covenant becomes a solemn guarantee to each other, to the parties in this contract or in this covenant, that there is an agreement and the agreement will be honored. So these are all facets or ways in which a sign in a covenant has meaning. There are some other examples I can highlight from your memory. Hopefully you've studied Genesis enough that some of these things are in your memory. Remember when Abraham receives his covenant, the one we'll study in a couple chapters from now? Or the one in which Israel receives the law, the old covenant, at the base of the mountain? What were the signs in those cases? Well, in the case of Abraham, the sign is circumcision. Between rainbow and circumcision, I can tell you which one I would prefer in any contract or covenant I have to enter into. But in his day, it was circumcision. In Israel's day, what was the sign of the Old Covenant? The Sabbath day. The Sabbath is the sign of the Old Covenant. And they both served the same purpose. Both circumcision and that weekly Sabbath day were reminders to mark the beginning of something and its perpetual nature. But they are not the substance. I can be circumcised. That doesn't mean I'm in the covenant with Abraham. I can observe a Sabbath day. It doesn't mean I'm a part of the Old Covenant. They're just signs. They're not the substance of the thing. Now, in verse 12, from what we read this morning, 
The Lord declares that the sign for the Noahic covenant, and that's the name we typically give this arrangement, the Noahic covenant, will be a rainbow. And in keeping with the nature of this covenant itself, the Lord here has selected a perfect sign, as only he could, an appropriate sign, one that communicates the essence of the covenant, just in the same way that the city limit sign tells you all you need to know about what's ahead of you. This sign is a perfect representation of what was established in this covenant. Let me show you why I think that's true. Signs must have certain characteristics in order for them to be valuable or or useful or meaningful. For example, it does no good if a chosen sign disappears before the covenant itself ends. If the sign itself goes away before the covenant it represents goes away, the sign's not really a good sign. If you put a city limit sign up in front of Austin and every time you turn around it was missing, that's not a very good sign because it's not helping. It's not doing its job. Similarly, if if it were possible for the body to somehow repair itself from circumcision, then circumcision wouldn't be a very good sign if the covenant is supposed to be permanent. Secondly, the sign must be visible to every party of the covenant, to everyone who is a party or a, a partner to the covenant. The sign must be visible to them. They must be able to see it. What good is a sign you can't see? I'm always chuckling when I drive through neighborhoods and these big trees overgrow to the point where they cover up the stop signs that are on the corners in the neighborhoods, and you think, that's really a dangerous situation, isn't it? Somebody ought to look at that and then just say to themselves, what good is a stop sign you can't see? And then finally, thirdly, the sign must stand out from everyday normal things. A sign just can't be more of what we already have. If it's not new and different, it doesn't stand out, it doesn't mean anything. God couldn't have picked, for example, clouds as His sign of the covenant with Noah because clouds had already been around and clouds have always been around and clouds don't appear to be anything new or different. How can we call that a sign of anything? It was always there. Or he couldn't have picked the sun as a sign of the old covenant or a sign of any covenant because it's there already. He needed something new and different. Now look at the rainbow in light of those three requirements. First, the rainbow is everlasting, just like the covenant. As long as the earth remains... As long as water falls from the sky, rain in other words, rainbows will exist. It's a physical reality of rain falling through air. Physics demand that it will always be there. Secondly, it's universally apparent. Every continent, every location on earth sees rainbows in the normal course of weather. Every person on earth, in fact, every animal on earth has the opportunity to witness this sign according to God's word and to the extent of their intellect appreciate its meaning, presuming they have consulted God's word where the meaning is given. Finally, a rainbow is uniquely associated with the end of a rainstorm. Have you considered that? Rainbows don't come at the beginning typically. They don't usually show up in the middle because there's not enough sunlight. But it's when the clouds are breaking after rain and yet there's still moisture in the atmosphere. That's when rainbows are most commonly seen. Think about what the meaning of the rainbow is supposed to be for us. What was the sign? What was implicit in in this rainbow? God says, the rain was the cause of the flood, but I won't flood the world anymore. That's the essence of the covenant. And the rainbow always appears when the rain is ending. So I will be able to look upon the rainbow and recognize God is putting an end to rain in keeping with his promise to never let it overwhelm the world again with water. 
What a perfect understanding. Every time you see a rainbow from now on, you recognize the end of some period of rain, and in that end, the proof that God is still at work keeping His Word, never to let rain flood the world. Now, what God has done in verses 1 through 17 is He has instituted human government with all its laws and penalties for violating law. All of that will come over time, but He has inaugurated it. He has begun it. And God has stated that acts of human government serve His divine purpose on earth. God has established that a life must be given for a life. And He has said that shed blood is the way that life will be poured out when law is violated. He has also said men cannot take blood as their food. Now, all of those terms, you may have noticed, they all foreshadow future covenants created by God. If we took time, we could identify similarities between this covenant and the old covenant, and this covenant and the new covenant, for example. Time won't permit me to do it at length, but let me give you a few examples, and perhaps this will stimulate your interest enough you'll look for them on your own. For example, as in the way this covenant established human law, human government, human rulers, the old covenant will establish God's law and God's rulers, and the new covenant will bring about God's kingdom and the ruler. In this covenant, we're shown that a crime against man requires that a man's life be given. But the old covenant will show a merciful God who will make a sacrifice available for sin so that we aren't the ones to pay our own penalty in every case. And then the new covenant will reveal a permanent sacrifice capable of removing all sin. This covenant taught that we must pour out the blood of animals rather than consume it. The old covenant will teach that that pouring out can become a sacrifice to atone for sin. And the new covenant will teach that the blood of a greater sacrifice, Christ, will be necessary to remit for all men, for all sin. There are other similarities and connections. You could do this at length if you had the interest. But the sum of it all is a single greater point. God is at work to reveal His plan to men and He's doing it in small stages. As men's sin develops and God responds to help mitigate it, He reveals Himself in portions and ways, here and there, along a continuum of time, all the while building to a larger point which is the ultimate solution for sin is not going to be found in anything less than the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. The writer of Hebrews actually says very much what I just said in this way. In verse 1 of chapter 1, Hebrews, the writer says, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things and through whom also He made the world. The writer of Hebrews is acknowledging very much this same point. We study this covenant between God and Noah in creation, and it's interesting. And in a brief way, we take note of it and we move on. But what you ought to take note of as well is, this is not the first nor last time God will enter into a covenant. And the features of this covenant begin to reinforce the same basic truths that later ones will as well. Now this leads us to the second question, the final question for the morning. What has this flood event accomplished in God's plan for the earth and for men? What was really changed by this flood? We get the answer in the course of the rest of the story of chapter 9 in an account of what happens immediately after the flood. Verse 18. 
Now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. Now those two verses set up what's about to happen next, but giving them just for a moment their proper due. Moses here reminds us that the men who left the ark were Noah and his sons, of course. Shem, Ham, and Japheth were Noah's sons. Noah had these sons probably about 75 years or so before the flood began. Then, as they enter into the ark, they have no children. I find it interesting that God brought no grandchildren onto the ark. For me, that's a sign of God's grace, so that young children weren't being exposed to an event that would have probably terrified them and probably would have been a very difficult one. Plus, the parents having to deal with kids in addition to everything else would have been an added burden under those circumstances. God was gracious to hold off for any childbearing until after the flood. Now, Moses adds in that brief description that Ham was the father of Canaan. That comment serves two purposes at this point in the narrative. First, it tells us enough time has passed since the flood that the first of Noah's grandchildren is now being born. So that tells us some time has passed, certainly. Secondly, it sets the scene for the rest of this chapter because Canaan now becomes a focus in the story. From these three men, we're told, the whole earth was populated. And we're going to learn more in the next chapter about how these men spread out, how they populated the earth. That's the history we'll see in chapter 10. That chapter is sometimes called the Table of Nations because it is the most complete record in the ancient world, in ancient literature, of how men moved about and populated the earth as we know today. The full diversity of human life came from one family. We can safely assume, by the way, that Ham, Shem, and Japheth, they all look pretty much the same. They were brothers. How different could they possibly look? They could probably have been seen from a, a distance and recognized as brothers. They probably shared traits with their mother and father, just like all kids do. One was not Caucasian, the other Oriental, the other black. They didn't look like they each came from different corners of the world. They all looked pretty much the same because they were all brothers. And yet, over history, the variations I just described and many others have emerged from these families. And as we contemplate that fact, you're going to find the Bible challenging us on our most deeply held prejudices against other people. Though we would like to think they don't exist and we do our best perhaps to put them away at times, it's almost inevitable for all of us that we run into moments in our everyday life in which we feel some instinctive negative reaction to some people group for whatever reason. Now, if there are those in here who can honestly say that never, ever happens to them, then you deserve our our praise for having reached that point because it is where we all should be. But I don't know that it's possible to get there this side of heaven, though we know we need to. Race is not a biological distinction. I can give you the DNA of five different people, and if you were a scientist who could read DNA, you could not tell me they're racist. You cannot determine race from DNA. There is no marker for race. Race is a human sociological concept. It is not a biological concept. Race is our way of describing a certain set of body features. And yet we have made those distinctions. The Bible says, on the other hand, all men came from one family. In the New King James, which I prefer this language, 
for the moment. In the New King James, Paul says it this way in Acts, Acts 17, 26. God has made from one blood every nation of man to dwell in all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. We're all family. Now, we knew that from chapter 1 when we saw God make Adam and, and Eve and everyone who fell from them share their blood. But it's even more pronounced when you look at one family coming out of the flood. Three boys that moved out into different corners of the world. From them came every human being on earth today. I don't care how different you look from me. We're related. And in fact, I, I, I frankly like some of you better than some of the people that are in my own family. So what difference does it make? Biblically speaking, therefore... As a Christian who believes what the Bible says and tries to take it to heart and live accordingly as best we can, then our attitudes toward other men and women must be entirely blind to differences in physical attributes, which we call race, since those differences are purely incidental. They're genetic chance. It's chance. I could have been up here with a different skin color. I could have been a different height. I could have whatever change in, in human description you want. What difference does it make? It's a temporary body anyway. It's a tent. It's going away. I'm going to get a different one anyway. Better be careful what we're prejudiced against because what happens if the body we end up with is exactly the thing we don't like today? Wouldn't that be ironic? These differences that we share came as a result of how men migrated away from one another in the course of human history, their physical isolation eventually caused genetic differences to concentrate in one way different than another, creating different physical attributes and commonalities or races, as we call them, or nations, as Acts 17 calls them. But at the end of the day, we're no different to God, and nor should we be to one another. I myself find at times a tendency to wrap up in my mind a whole set of assumptions merely because I notice somebody's physical attributes. Because of things about the way they look, I make judgments about who they are and about what they think and how they'll act or behave toward me or something else. That's wrong if what I'm doing is not giving opportunity for who they really are to come forward, but rather I'm labeling them based on how they look. That's, that's not helpful to them or me, and at the end of the day, it's not a Christian attitude. Be on guard about it and ask yourself, when you make those judgments, what is behind it? Now that life is beginning to return to normal, Noah, we're told, becomes a farmer. Look at verse 20. Then Noah began farming and planting a vineyard, and he drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth, took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. Now, this is an interesting story. And at first glance, you may question how it fits into what we've been studying in the whole of chapter nine. But rest assured, it cuts to the core of it. Noah, we're told at the beginning here, plants a vineyard and eventually it brings forth grapes. The word, therefore, began farming, literally, and if you were to translate it a little more literally, it would, it would be begat farming, which implies he started something he hadn't previously done. This is something new for Noah. That makes some sense when you consider that in the day in which Noah finds himself, the earth being wiped out by and large, it would have made sense he would have started farming out of necessity, just to start growing things he needs to eat. 
he plants a vineyard. He produces grapes, of course. Then he makes wine. All of this tells us what we learned a moment ago by looking at the fact that Canaan is now being discussed. It means there's been time passing since the flood. My guess here, at least several years have gone by now since Noah walked off the boat. And it's from that vantage point. The reason this story is in the scripture is we needed a little time, a little perspective between the event of the flood itself and what now comes upon the world in the years that follow. And this vantage point of a few years' time lets us fully assess the impact and the purpose of the flood. What was its purpose? What did it actually achieve on earth? Now, looking at the story, in enjoying the, the harvest here of the vineyard, Noah, we're told, becomes drunk one night. Now, this is the first mention of wine in Scripture, and this is not grape juice. It may have been grape juice for a short time, but it very quickly thereafter became wine. This is fermented alcoholic beverages, not, not something less. For that to be obvious, you don't get drunk on Welch's grape juice. You need to get alcohol in your body to be drunk. This is alcohol, simply put. Now, we could take another side trip, and I've already uh, indulged in one today, but I could take a side trip here on the question of alcohol, and I won't. But suffice to say that wine itself is never cast as the enemy in Scripture. In fact, quite opposite of that. It's often used to picture other things. But drunkenness is the evil that we are told to avoid. And Noah's story is great testimony to this truth. If we cannot personally enjoy wine, or any alcohol for that matter, without drunkenness, then we should refrain from it altogether. That's the biblical truth. There's really no getting around it, and there's not much reason to go into it deeper than that. But Noah's drunkenness here becomes the focal point for understanding what the flood accomplished. In the case of his story, it leads him to pass out in his tent, and in the course of passing out, his robes were open or, or otherwise they you know, weren't there or he exposed himself in some fashion, of course. But at the end of it all, one of his children, Ham, was able to see him unclothed. Now, in his nakedness, Noah exposed himself in a shameful, particularly shameful and sinful way, both biblically and culturally. Let's not run too quickly to writing this off as some kind of cultural distinction some unique cultural practice in which nakedness adds some especially shameful property to the individual. This is a biblical issue. And as such, it's still appropriate to us, not just in this one culture. Now, the sons here, the other two sons, Shem and Japheth, they eventually come in, as you notice, and cover their father's body to lessen his shame. But that's not before the other son, Ham, has increased the shame of himself and his father through his own response. Now, before we look at all the details there and work through it, I want to remind you of an earlier moment in Genesis. In the story of Adam, specifically in the garden. Think back to that story for a moment in your mind. At the beginning of Adam's time on the new earth that had been created for him, his life was, was simple, mostly solitary. It was just him and his wife, his family, no one else on earth. He uh, enjoyed God's provision in a garden. Adam had the testimony of being blameless, of being innocent before God. And unfortunately, we know the story goes that he doesn't stay that way. In a moment of weakness, influenced by the enemy, Adam took a fruit from the garden. And he brought shame to God and men by partaking of this fruit. And in response to this new shameful state that he had established, both he and woman tried to cover themselves, to cover up that shame. 
their nakedness, in other words. And by that fall, men now suffer a lasting penalty as a result. That's the summation of the story of Adam. Now, if we return to Noah's story, do you see the parallels? They start to jump off the page, don't they? We immediately see God orchestrated these events to reinforce a basic story here of man's sin and God's plan for redemption. For example, Noah here has become a farmer in this post-flood age, though he was not a farmer before. Adam, remember, was given the responsibility to tend the garden. A farmer. Noah makes an uncharacteristic mistake. He becomes drunk. Remember what he was said to be in chapter 6? Blameless before God. Now, Noah's mistake was to partake of fruit in excess. Obviously, that's a little different. Adam's sin was to take of the fruit at any level, but it's still similar. Both were sins that acted against God's word in doing something that's prohibited. Now, drunkenness, as I've already said, is a sin, according to the Bible, but it's a particularly insidious one, and those effects are very evident here in the story of Noah. Drunkenness breaks down a barrier that's been erected by our own conscience, which God gave us to protect us from sin. And when drunkenness takes hold and that barrier is dropped, we are now open to new sin and additional sin. Drunkenness overrides our willingness to hear and listen and depend upon the Spirit. That's why Paul says we should be drunk with the Spirit, not with wine. It tempts us into further sin, and its consequences extend far beyond ourselves and into the lives of others. And look at how Noah's experience mirrors all of those aspects of drunkenness. For one, you see Ham here, his son, who comes upon Noah and sees him naked. Now, nakedness in our culture is losing its sense of shame, which is why some people look at this story and sort of yawn at the whole prospect of what happens here. But what's the big deal? That might be the thought some people would have when they read this story. In our culture today, people glory in showing their bodies, as much of it as they can get away with, and especially in inappropriate ways, challenging the the convention, challenging the law. I was reading just this week about uh, the latest thing in cruising are naked cruises, where the whole boat is occupied by people who want to do nothing but walk around all day with their clothes off. And when you look at what they say about doing this, it's evident that what they're trying to do is override a conscience that knows they're not supposed to do it. And they have to work their way through that. It's like a barrier they have to bust through, or it's a constant reminder. And they're trying to escape the conviction of their own conscience. One of the signs of Christian immaturity, in my experience, and and selfishness, frankly, is when we see a man or woman wearing clothing that's revealing, especially when they're attending in a gathering, particularly, let's say, a church gathering, because all they're doing is tempting others to lust, to enter into sin, and with no gain for themselves, at no advantage. For if they were to obtain what those revealing clothings are intended to obtain, they'd be calling someone else into sin with them. What what possible good is there in doing something like that? I've had that experience when you have a youth function. You've seen what I've seen. And I think it's particularly bad today with some of the youthful women, what they're encouraged and allowed to wear. That mindset, that cultural thinking is behind our inability to appreciate what's going on here because we don't understand why this is such a big deal. In the day of Noah and under biblical standards, revealing the body in this fashion is a particularly sinful and shameful act because it serves no good purpose. It glorifies flesh. It encourages lust. 
It is designed to bring attraction for the wrong reasons. It cannot lead to good. It can't. To be seen naked in that day brought shame on the person and upon the one who witnessed the indiscretion. So for Noah, his son Ham will never look upon him the same way again. It's inevitable. And that's Noah's shame, that he would have brought that about such that his son now has to carry the the image, the memory of dad without clothes on, which would have been a shameful thing. And should Noah have learned of Ham's own discovery? Had the news come back to Noah that, Dad, I saw you naked last night? If Ham had, had confided in Dad after the fact, then the shame is magnified for both of them. Better that he have done something to cover his dad and have said nothing about it to anyone than to have done anything that he did in the story. That's not lying, by the way. That's not lying. That's discretion. That's holding information that you know can only be damaging if it gets out. And doing it with the motive to be respectful and to try to restore some element of dignity to your father. So it's particularly horrifying when we hear that Ham goes outside the tent immediately after he sees his dad and tells his brothers what he saw, that his father's in the tent, drunk and naked. Now, Ham had a choice when he discovered his father, obviously. He could have done what his brothers elected to do. He could have covered his dad and made the best of a bad situation. Instead, the text doesn't say this, but I think it implies this. Instead, Ham gloats, glories in his father's shame. And he tells his brothers what he saw. That immediately multiplies the shame of his father, for now two more sons are sharing in this knowledge. And his father's shame is magnified. And by not covering his, his dad, now he forces his brothers to confront and to deal with a father who's still yet naked. Now, thankfully, these boys had better sense than their brother, Ham. And when they had the opportunity to do something about it, they took the only step they could. They walked backward into the tent carrying a cloak so that they could drop it on their father without magnifying his shame. Think about how much they loved their father. To do that, to know that he wouldn't have known if they'd seen him or not. To know that what they were doing was the right thing to do without anyone watching. Remember the old saying, what is character? Character is what you do when no one's watching. This is the character of those two sons. That they knew that their father's shame could be at least mitigated to some extent if they didn't participate in the glorying with it that their brother did. Here you see more parallels, by the way, in the story of Adam. In the fall of the garden, there were essentially three actors in that drama, in that play. You have the one who was responsible for the shame of the fall. You have the one who tried to mitigate against it. And you have the one who was behind the scenes the whole time inspiring it. Here you have a similar trio of actors. First, you have Ham. He's playing the part of Adam in this story. He made a conscious choice to disregard his father's glory and brought shame to himself by his actions. Then you have Shem and Japheth as a pair. They really represent the part of woman from the garden. They're caught up in the events. They're parties to it. Before they even knew it, they were already involved in it. And they were unable to avoid the whole sordid affair. This is something that was thrust upon them. But they do what they can anyway within their limits to minimize their father's shame. They try to defend him as best they can. You remember a woman in the garden, her efforts to defend the word of God in the face of Satan's accusations. They were incomplete and at the end of the day she did the wrong thing, but she tried. Unlike Adam who didn't. And then finally the third actor, we have Satan. He plays himself 
as only he can. He's behind the scenes in both stories. In the garden, he deceived the woman and instigated the rest of the story. Here, he deceives Noah. He brings this occasion of Noah's sin. The Bible teaches us that he's a prowling, roaring lion, ready to pounce at any opportunity. What you see here is a man who let his guard down, indulged his flesh, and the rest happened. But in keeping with what I said about drunkenness a minute ago, look at the consequences of one man's poor decision in one moment. What will follow and we'll study next week as a part of our transition into chapter 10 is a series of pronouncements from Noah, which, by the way, also mirror chapter 3 of Genesis, in which God then makes his own pronouncements. The father in that story and the father in this story makes pronouncements of curse and of blessing in response to the sin of Ham. So what is God teaching in this section? To wrap up the the flood story, what is God teaching about the flood? Well, first, the power and the enormity of the flood event itself was still not enough to wipe out the effects of sin on the earth. Simply put, it's not a solution. If the flooding of the entire earth above every mountain is not enough to end sin on earth and to do away with the problem that was created in the garden, then it is evident that the solution is not found on earth. Not in our works, not in our piety, not in our religious practices, not in anybody's encouragement or instruction. It just can't be done. It requires more than a flood of water to do away with sin. Remember, Noah was described as blameless and upright in chapter 6. You only have to get to chapter 9 to see the guy drunk and naked. Secondly, the root cause, the root cause of sin is Satan. And he is still present and working in the sons of disobedience. He didn't stop in the garden. This isn't the last time we'll see him. He is ever present. Third, men cannot produce an acceptable covering to reverse the shame of sin. Adam and woman tried to do it with fig leaves. It wasn't acceptable. God provided animal skin, but even then, that is a temporary solution. Noah's children tried to cover his nakedness and shame with a cloak as best they could. But of course, once the cat is out of the bag, so to speak, you cannot solve this problem. Only a spiritual covering can affect that kind of change. We need to be covered spiritually. Somehow, we have to go before the throne of God and say, I am a sinner who needs your covering, God, for I cannot find one on earth of my own making, sufficient to solve this problem. And then, finally, the dispensation of human governing will not be an answer to sin any more than the earlier period, the earlier dispensation of human conscience was a solution. Men left to their own conscience in the time after the garden brought the world to depravity. And here you have government. Who is the government on the earth right now? It's Noah. Noah is top dog. He's president, prime minister, and king all at once. He is human government. There's no one else. Whatever family has started to develop underneath him, whatever sons and grandsons and so on that he has, they all fall under his authority. He's the patriarch as it stands right now. He is the king. The king is naked and drunk. Human government, friends, is not a solution to anything. As we often say, it's the problem. But it's not just it, it's us. It's everyone is the problem. Government will not be a solution to men's sin any more than our conscience can keep us from sinning, any more than the later dispensations will, short of the dispensation of grace in Christ. Each new dispensation we're going to study in these future weeks and months will bring a new measure of control 
trying to mitigate against man's sinfulness. But at the end of the day, they are mitigations. They are not solutions. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, for the important lessons of Noah's life. He began, Father, as a man who showed great faith and obedience to do as you instructed. He is still a man, Father, from whom we, we learn much in that regard. But as we saw today, he is yet still just a man. We no more look to Noah, Father, for our salvation than we would look to Moses, than we would look to a preacher or pastor, than we would look to any earthly source. The creation, Father, is not our solution. It is the problem, and we are a part of it. Thank you, Father, that your message of Scripture has never varied and remains true throughout every page, that apart from faith in the provision of grace through Christ, we have no hope. And though, Father, we may know that truth and have accepted it long ago and live according to it, we also know, Father, that we can never hear it enough. We can never be reminded enough that our works are not the solution, that our piety, that our outward image of Christian living that our words and our prayers and all the things we do because we feel like we need to do them in honor to You or in obedience, all of those things, Father, serve a good purpose, but we know, Father, they do not and cannot serve an ultimate purpose in our life, and that is to make us righteous before You. For even our best works, Father, are filthy rags, You tell us. So I pray, Lord, that we would continually remind ourselves that as sinful as we are, we rest entirely on the righteousness of Christ that when we stand before You in that coming day, You will look on us and You will call us worthy to enter into Your presence, but only because we wear the cloak of righteousness Christ gives us. May we preach that message even as we live it. And may we share it with as many as You give us opportunity to do in the week to come. Thank You, Lord, for this study and for our continuing time in it. May we come back next week with others perhaps to continue. We praise You and we thank You today. In Jesus' name, Amen.